Hey everybody, it is episode 87 of the Running Rogue podcast. Stephen, Chris coming at you from across international lines, at least that is in my case. I am podcasting here from vacation in Mexico, but the show must go on. <laughs> yes, it must. <laughs> and we've, we've not only were recording this intro, but we also interviewed Dina uh, this week. And we're super excited to bring her interview to you, our second episode in the Adorphin Book Club. We've got Dina on for the interview to talk about her memoir, Let Your Mind Run, which if the book was good, the interview was even better, Steve, and we're super excited to be presenting that to you guys today. Absolutely. As a reminder for those who have perhaps lived in a hole... Over the last 20 years, Dina is not only the American record holder in the Marathon Open, but also the American record holder in the Marathon for Masters U.S. Women. She's won Chicago and London. She's got a bronze medal in the Olympics from Athens. She's also a two-time World Cross silver medalist and an eight-time national champion in cross country along with many, many other national championships. She is perhaps the greatest U.S. female distance runner of all time, although, Steve, we probably still need to have that debate. Yeah, Um, we do need to. (laughs) But she is certainly an amazing runner, an amazing person, a contributor to the sport in so many ways. And her book now, Let Your Mind Run, is just another part of that contribution. And you are going to love this interview with her today. Before we get there, though, we've got some intro topics as always. I got an email this week from a listener, Andrew, that he he had a request for our intro. He says, please make a plug in your current events section of your podcast for the Sir Walter Myler held in Raleigh this past Friday. I drove two and a half hours and dragged my wife there to see eight and a half minutes of crazy racing, explaining to her the nuances of pace versus tactical races. It was a great atmosphere and exactly the kind of crowd you guys have been trying to develop with your intro segments. I've never seen a sub four live. All 13 of the men who finished ran sub four. The event was free and they allow the crowds on the track behind the barriers on lane five. So it was crazy loud. Definitely deserves a shout out. And, of course, Andrew, there's nothing that makes us happier than to hear you hear about you dragging your wife two and a half hours to a track meet. And so that that means that we're doing our job with our intro topics. But, yes, we need to talk about the Sir Walter Myler, this little meet in Raleigh that started, I believe, in 2014 as sort of a grassroots meet to try to give – American milers a chance to run more often on U.S. soil instead of having to go to Europe to get in a fast race. And this year's race did not disappoint. On the men's side, we had a pretty stacked field with folks like Lopez Lemong, U.S. 10K champion, Johnny Gregoric, world championship team member, Ben Blankenship, Craig Ingalls, Hassan Mead. Really, really solid field. And yes, all 13 U.S. men in the field went under four minutes. Lopez won on the backs of his 10K U.S. champs. He won in 3.53. And the slowest last 
person across the line was Christian Serratos, who ran a 3.59, almost a full second under four minutes. Every single one of those athletes was in the money because they were they were given bonuses for going sub four, and a couple of them were given a little extra bonus for going sub four for the first time. Nice. So pretty cool little meet and pretty cool to see Lopez's range here getting the win uh, on the back of, of doing some of that strength work at the 10K distance after doing USAs and Peachtree. What do you think, Steve? I mean, it, well, first of all, that's not a cupcake field that he beat. Those are serious milers. I mean, Gregoric, Prackle, you look at Blankenship and Angles, who are the bigger names. Um, those are like, those are real milers who are in finals in Europe, in the final at the U.S. champs. Um, the guys that we're talking about winning um, the U.S. champs or maybe getting into the final at the world champs or maybe in some cases could somebody medal. Not likely in that group is there a medalist, right, at a, at a world championship level or Olympic level from the, from the mile. But there's still, you know, I picked Gregoric for the win at USA's. That didn't play out. But um, these are real runners, and he beat them by almost a second, Chris. And while our listeners might not know what a second is, you can go to the SirWalterMiler.com website, click on the results page, and they have the race video there. You can see in the race at the end of it the, the, this, how far away he got over that last bit. So his strength definitely played, but Lopez has still got all the skills. And Chris, I was a little dismissive after he won USA's in the 10. Happy to hear it, but was just sort of like, meh, maybe our 10K field is just not as serious. And we've got great 5Kers and 1,500-meter runners, but our best guys are not showing up. They're thinking about the marathon or the half or they're on the roads or whatever. Well, this puts us in a little bit of a different light, in my opinion. And I think Lopez is showing a resurgence that um, is, frankly, incredibly inspiring, given what we know about Lopez as a storyline for our sport, but also given what we know about his ability to compete at an international level. Lopez has the skills to be a medalist at the world level, both physiologically and psychologically. Whereas we don't, other than Galen, we don't really have that many other guys that we can talk about that with. Now, he hasn't proved that, Chris. And I will stand here and say, yes, he hasn't proved it. But a race like this sort of makes me tilt my head a little bit more towards the potential that Lopez has to being a world-class 10,000-meter runner. Um, so I know that's a big stretch and a big statement, but I believe it. Because Lopez is not going to move to the marathon anytime soon. I don't know if Lopez is a guy who even ever goes to the marathon. So if he's got a few more years in him and he continues to plug away in this 510 zone and he's got the coach and Schumacher who can get him there, what do we think, Chris? Is, is, there, is there a potential for being um, in the mix from a metal perspective for a guy like Lopez? I don't know. I think that we can actually maybe consider that question because, okay, yeah, 353 miles not in, the middle of, in the middle of nowhere U.S. is not necessarily the biggest thing in the world. But it's something, and it definitely shows that range that he has is much better, and he seems to be back in the game. What do you think? I agree. I mean, I, the fact that he has the strength 
to win a U.S. Championships in the Tenge and is now showing that that speed is still there from when he was an Olympian as a 1,500-meter runner. That's a powerful combination in the right race. Now, I think the challenge for Lopez is, is that question, which is, is there going to be a race that allows him to stay in the game long enough to use the combination of his strength and his kick? And now that Mo Farah has moved to the marathon, perhaps there will be. But you've got a guy in Joshua Cheptegi from Uganda who we talked about, who is a bold, crazy front runner, and and the Ethiopians who are trying to beat him will will take out those sort of international races at fast paces to try to to try to burn off any kick that he might have. So, you know, I think that's the question. If he was in a slower, more tactical 10 k, I think Lopez has a chance. But if he's in a faster one, like you've seen recently in international races when Farah was in the game, and now that you have Chip Teggy and some of the other East Africans in the game, showing that they're not afraid to take it out at fast paces, I think those types of races are going to be more difficult for him still at this stage. But we will see. It's certainly intriguing, and it's certainly fun to have him back in the game because we had both sort of written him off as somebody who was probably not going to be relevant, but we were wrong. We were yeah, flat out wrong. And he's proving that he is wrong because he does for our listeners. He is someone who I believe has a skill set, but things have to play out just right. I agree. Yes. And then on the women's side, you had in this race, an equally stacked field. You had Charlene Lipsy, who's famous for being one of the, top three 800 meter runners in the u.s get the win in 427 she was followed by a world championship team member sarah vaughn Corey mcgee both of those three finishing within a second of each other and then you know down the field you had amanda eccleston stephanie garcia lauren johnson sarah brown all who have you know been at the top of the u.s at the mile level potentially at the steeple level or the 5K level at various times. So again, a solid field, top to bottom on the women's side. Three women, or sorry, five women went under 430, which is sort of the equivalent sub-4 standard for women. And Charlene and Sarah both had PRs to take the top two spots. This one was a little bit closer where Charlene had to use that 800-meter speed to nip Sarah Vaughn at the line by three one-hundredths of a second. So pretty exciting women's race as well. Yeah, that that, that was a way closer race. <laughs> yeah. But what a race for, for Lipsy. Huge um, step up for her. And, you know, I've said this a couple times. I know what her training program looks like. And even though she's an 800-meter runner, I think she could be I, – I think she could be – uh, one of, if not our best, and she could be in the mix with our 1500 meter runners um, right now. And our 1500 meters runners are considering medals. So seeing her run this is really, really good. I think um, it's exciting to see her stretch her range. Um, you know, this is a girl who anchored her four by four all her career at LSU. And at LSU, the four by four, they're in the NCAA championship final. Every single year, year in year, she ran at least eight NCAA finals where she was on the four by four team. 
So seeing her stretch all the way out to a mile, 1,609 meters, is really, really exciting. And we know she had this skill set, Chris. I think you and I both knew it. Um, hopefully she can, in this next year, get this consistency down to where she's competing at a really high level. So, of course, exciting to see Sarah Vaughn back in the mix. She had a great USA USA's this year. Um, she has uh, continuing to, 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 to do really well and being balancing that role of mother and elite athlete is always an incredibly incredible challenge, especially in the day and age where these athletes like Sarah Vaughn are not getting paid what anywhere near what a, what a, what a regular, like what a, what a basic job pays. So, um, you know, this is, it's great to see her continuing to, to, to swing for the fences and continuing to run really, really well. Um, so great field. I think the men's field comparatively was better, Chris, but the women's race may have been a better race the way it played out. Um, and, uh, I think there's a lot of, uh, I'm, I'm thankful that, uh, that we got to get highlighted on this and hopefully people will go watch those videos and see how the electric that energy was at those finish lines for those two races. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Go check it out. <clears throat> SirWalterMiler.com. If you click on the 2018 results, you can see the flow track videos that are linked next to the top of those results. Really, really cool stuff. And thank you, Andrew, for bringing that to our attention. I think we would have talked about it anyway, but it's cool that we got prompted by your email. All right, so our next intro topic, we've got to discuss the Beach to Beacon race, which is a 10K in the U.S. that's, gosh, I don't even know how old, but a historic race. And on the men's side, you had an absolutely unbelievable performance from a guy we've talked about a couple times on this podcast, the New Zealander, Jake Robertson, who absolutely destroyed this field by by nearly a minute, Steve, running 27-37 on the roads for a 10K, winning this in just absolutely dominating fashion over Stephen Sambu and Ben True. I mean, you know, Jake won the the half marathon in Houston earlier this year in a really, really impressive time. We've seen results from him here and there that are starting to show that his potential, especially as he thinks about moving up to the marathon, is really, really great. But this one, to me, I think is perhaps the most impressive. What do you make of this result, and what does it mean for Jake and his potential as he moves up to the marathon? He's racing Toronto in October. Well, he... Obviously, that time and energy spent in Kenya to do the work that he and his twin brother have been doing pays off, is paying off now 10, 12 years down the road. To me, the story of how we talked about this on a former podcast, Chris, I can't remember exactly which one, just about that story that came out about the lifestyle that they live, the challenges they had in making those decisions to see someone stay with it that long against all odds. And then now having these results is incredibly exciting. I know there are going to be people who are going to say, these guys aren't doing it right. But if you know their story, you know that there's a chance that they are. And I believe that they are because look at, they've done the work and it's just taken so long for them to be able to make that work come out into play and for us to see it. But to win by a minute over a Ben True or more than a minute over Ben True and Steven Sambu, I mean, Chris, this is a world-class performance on in a U.S. race. And it is incredibly exciting to think about where he'll be positioning himself when he comes to the marathon. 
I'm very a little bit confused though, Chris, about the selection of race for him. He's an athlete right now that could easily get into the elite fields at Berlin and the elite field at Chicago. Um, why is he choosing Toronto? And what's the plan there? Um, what does he think is going to play out for him if he's got, unless he's got some some real good pacers or they've got some other plan? I'd like to hear what the reasoning is for the selection of that race because, Chris, I would really like to see him on the starting line at Berlin or Chicago to see what he's capable of doing. Yeah, seriously. I mean, he, he has debuted in the marathon in Japan in a time of 2.08. That happened earlier this year in March, which is a really, really impressive debut, and he set the New Zealand national record then. But you're right. What will happen when he gets into a field like we're about to talk about in a second, like a like the Chicago field? We will see. Now, he has said that the Pacers in Toronto are supposed to be going out in 205 or 206. They haven't solidified that pace yet. So if that's the case, he'll still have the potential to run a really fast time and a big PR. But it is odd to me, and maybe he just hasn't gotten the right offer. You know, I know with Houston, he was waiting, 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 last minute to make that decision to, to fly to Houston because he hadn't gotten the right offer from the race yet. And so maybe he just hasn't gotten the right offer from a big international marathon. That absolutely makes sense, Chris. And and also we do know that Toronto, you know, you've been to that, we've taken rogues out to that race. It's, it's a really well put on race. It's flat and fast and it has really pretty, it's, it's not a guarantee of good weather, but certainly a much better weather guarantee than you're going to get at, Berlin or, well, maybe not Berlin, but for sure the better weather than you're going to get at Chicago. So, you know, you're right. It may be that he just isn't got the results, but to me, what he did and what he was able to do at Houston and what this race result shows, the guy's ready to go, put him in, let's give him a chance. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so we will see, but we'll definitely be keeping you updated on Jake Robertson's results. Solid race here from Ben True. Steve, even if he was a minute back to get third in an overall solid field. The thing with Ben True, though, is he's sort of this journeyman runner who has a really impressive number of podiums in in big races, but hasn't had that sort of international result that I think he can really hang his hat on, um, you know, as, as a as a breakthrough performance that means something more than just getting on a podium in a big race. What do you think, what, what would you want to see from Ben True next? I think he's got to move up. You know what I mean? I think that what else is he, what else? I mean, I don't know. I mean, he's, he doesn't, we know he can't even win a U.S. championship in the 10,000 right now. He was going up against, consistently was going up against Galen Rupp nearly every time he tried to do that and a, and a host of other people. But he's going to get beat by Hassan Mead because Hassan's got better wheels and Hassan can stay away. Um, if you think about what's going on in Colorado Springs with the Army group that's going on there, he cannot compete with those guys. Um, at some point in time, we're going to see Mr. Chalimo move up to the 10,000 when that happens. So it's like, Ben, what are you doing? It's time to move up. I think he needs to move to the marathon and needs to stretch himself. And, you know, the kind of training that he does with his coach, his coach has made a, his coach made an Olympic team in the marathon. So it's like, 
why not make that step? Maybe that's something that he's never wanted to do, or maybe it's that they're putting in the work right now to be in a position to do that. Who knows? But I think that that's really all he's got. Now, of course, you know, maybe someone would say he has a better chance to make the 2020 Olympic team in the 10K than he does in the marathon. Well, he can still go after the marathon and then come back down to the 10K and probably be in a similar position to make both teams to take a stab at it. So I don't know. I, I, I would predict that we will see Ben True in a marathon in less than a year. Um, I hope it's even less than that, but I think we would have heard rumors about it if that were the case. Well, he did, you know, he won the U.S. or the New York City half earlier this year in January as, as his first attempt at the half marathon distance. And he was a little bit coy at the time about moving up to the marathon, but I agree with you, especially with that team in a sense being wide open and the type of runner he is who's super tough and has put in the volume. It, it doesn't seem to me a, a stretch to think that he'd be good at the marathon based on the type of runner that we know who he, he is. So why hasn't he done it? I don't know, but I agree with you. I'd like to see him there and see what that would bring to him. So we will see. Yep. Elsewhere in Beach to Beacon on the women's side, you have uh, you had Molly Huddle again <laughs> doing her thing. She got third in this race behind a couple of East Africans. She finished in thirty-one forty, and you know, still, still, still doing it there after coming back from the nearly breaking fifteen and the five k on the track in Houston. But to me, it's sort of like I kind of shrug my shoulders a little bit at this, <laughs> based on our discussion on the last podcast about Molly Huddle. It's you know, it's this is great. You know, but this doesn't really add anything to her resume, and and it just demonstrates perhaps again that she hasn't fully committed to the marathon yet. I hate to throw stones at Molly Huddle because she's not deserving of stone throwing, um, given her resume and the number of U.S. titles that she's won. But it does make this all a little bit confusing to me as to what she's really focusing on at this point. Yeah, I mean. You and I, we've, you know, this is, we're beating, we're beating a dead horse here, right? But I mean, she needs to just, I think this is probably a payday. It's not that far from where she lives. So, um, and it had good competition. So from those perspectives, you can look at it and say, oh, makes sense, right? But yeah. I agree with you. What do we, what do we really need to see from her? Um, we need, you know, I, I, again, I, I think she gets short shrift because of all the energy and all the focus she put on Boston. But we are sort of in this weird position where we're judging her based on a race result that really wasn't a race result, as we know, with all the athletes that we coached that were there. Um, so perhaps we should back down a bit on her. But again, I think that her her long term, for all the success that she's had, the queen of the 10K, the queen of the 5K for so long in the U.S. She's going to be judged, now that she's decided to be a marathoner, her entire career is going to be judged against this, the measuring stick of that final step. And unfortunately, if she doesn't step up, how much does that, does that impact and ding her when we talk about being one of the best, in the, being the best distance runner ever in the U.S.? 
I don't think she's going to be able to get that unless she wins a, ma- a marathon major, unless she medals at the marathon in the Olympics. And um, to me, it seems that all energy and all focus should be driven purely and simply on one specific goal, which is to be focused on the marathon and get those wins. Um, that's all she has. That's all she needs to do. And I think, Chris, you and I will both say if she does that, if she medals or she or she gets a um, or she gets a major marathon win, um, she's she could be the greatest of all time, given what she's done on the track. Yeah, but she is missing that signature international result, really. And she's got Jordan and she's got Jordan who's making the statements that you and I want to hear. Jordan's pointing at the monster, right? And hitting a a, a grand slam home run over the monster every time she goes out by saying the stuff that she says, which, you know, is Molly doesn't do that, right? That was our concern before Boston that she was hemming and hawing. And Jordan's not afraid to do that. And if Jordan misses, we, we sort of love her for it more because she tries and it just seems like maybe Molly does it. And we need to see some more boldness from her, in my opinion. I agree with that. And speaking of Jordan, we'll use that as our segue to quickly talk about the international fields for the Chicago Marathon that were announced this week and some statements by Jordan Hesse that actually tie to our interview with Dina Castor. So they released their international fields and and we've got to give props to Chicago for putting together legitimate fields this year on both sides of the race. The men and the women on the American side will will be challenged for sure. You've got on the women's side we'll start there. We've got a couple of athletes that have already run under 220 and three that have faster PRs than Jordan herself plus other great runners like Yuka Ando from Japan. And then, as we know, we've got Amy Hastings-Cragg and Jordan Hesse in this field. Jordan said this week that she, as you said, is pointed at the monster. She's going for the record. She wants the U.S. record in the marathon, which was set by Dina Castor in 219 and 36 seconds. So she's got that to shoot for, which would be a PR by more than a minute and a half. But she has the field to do it, and I'm sure the Pacers will be set up for it. What do you think? Is this her chance to? I think this is exactly this is exactly where she needs to be. I mean, Boston to me, Chris, it just needs to be wiped off the face of the planet. Other than Desi's win, and other than um, the Japanese guy's win, other than their wins, I think that otherwise you just take that race and just toss it in the toilet. It doesn't. It doesn't tell us anything. I think it can tell a coach something specific about those athletes that they coached in that race. You and I both talked about that, Chris, about some of the athletes that we coached had had what we thought were great days that maybe that didn't get, they didn't, they won't get credit for, but that's sort of like the one-to-one that you discuss. When we talk about these elite athletes, I'm not judging Molly or Jordan on what happened in that race because it's just so crazy. What I'm going to judge Jordan on is here, a choice like this, picking a race like this, and making a statement that where she says, not only do I want to win, but I want to run fast. That's an athlete who's confident. That's an athlete who believes in themselves. And that's an athlete who um, honestly is chasing the ghost. And that's what I want to see from her. It's really exciting to see that and to see where she's sitting with that result. And, you know, she's not the fast, going to be the fastest woman in the field here. 
I mean, if she's, as you said, she's behind by about a minute and a half from the fastest person in the race. Um, but she's certainly, in my opinion, the largest name in the race, even though you've got the Dababa who won Tokyo um, in February running pretty, you know, pretty running really, really fast and had, had gotten 10th at Worlds. But I still think that this is a race field that Jordan can go at it. Another thing that's really intriguing here, Chris, though, is Amy Craig is in this race. What does that play out and how does that play into what goes on here? Um, Amy Craig now with her new 221 huge PR that she got at Tokyo this last year um, and was only basically two minutes behind um, the woman who basically just a little um, only about two minutes behind the woman who won Tokyo, the Dababa who won Tokyo. So, you know, we've I'm interested to see how that plays out. But the biggest story here is Jordan, what Jordan's going to go after and how that race will play out for her. And what are all the steps that go into having that kind of result on that kind of day? Yeah, it's a it's a big deal <laughs> to call your shot like that. I'm really impressed by it. And that's as we said, that's the kind of thing I'd like to see from Molly Huddle. You know, why isn't she making statements like that? Why isn't she setting her sights on an American record? She has a way better resume than Jordan does to say that she could potentially get there other than having, you know, the 220 marathon PR, but her but her history on the track says that that should be something that's possible. So why isn't she? Why isn't she doing that? But kudos to Jordan for putting it out there. I think it's going to be interesting to see the pace that they ultimately choose to go after. And I think it'll also be interesting to see if Amy Craig goes with that pace or chooses to hang back for a second pack and hopefully pick off the stragglers that might come out of a, of a hot early pace from the leaders. So we'll see, but it's going to be fascinating to watch. If you had to predict now whether Jordan would get that American record, what would you say, Steve? I say I would need to look at weather on race day, but I say she has a really good chance at breaking that record. Um, and I don't think that they would make statements like that if they did not already see at this point, you know, early August that she's in a position because we're only two months away, Chris, like we're right there. This is, they know what shape she's in if they're making these kinds of statements. So that's exciting to me. So I say she's got a shot. I think she's got a shot. And as we heard, um, as, as our listeners will hear with our interview with um, Dina that they're going to be listening to here in just a second, Dina's also hopeful that that happens. She was cagey about who she thought would get it right. <laughs> or who she thought would, would be the first one. But you could kind of feel in her statement that uh, perhaps Jordan is the one that everyone expects to be the one to get that record. Yeah, we shall see. It's going to be fun to watch. We'll make our, our predictions for that race coming up, but I think you and I might disagree about who will be the first American across. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> On the men's side, we have a field that is decidedly not Rupp certified. Last year, Chicago got a lot of criticism for what seemed to be teeing up the win for Galen Rupp. And in this year, he is definitely in over his head, perhaps, with this field, which is going to be exciting to see how he responds. You've got three athletes that have run 204 recently, a couple of athletes that have run 205, then Rupp, but also perhaps more importantly, you know, you have Mo Farah in the field and you have Joffrey Karui who we believe may be 
other than Kipchoge, the best marathoner on the planet, hasn't run a really fast paced race. He has primarily focused on the the non-paced or championship style races where he's had a couple of victories last year in Boston and Worlds. Got second in Boston this year after falling behind late. But but this one this one's gonna be tough. And I think Rupp's it's gonna be tough for Rupp to even get on the podium in this field, Steve. And uh, you've got to believe that Joffrey Karui is the favorite of this mix, given his his ability to win or at least get top two in races. You also have Yuki Karuchi, the Boston champion in, in this field. His PR is only a 208, so it pales in comparison to most of these guys. But, man, if it's windy and cold, we know Yuki's got a chance. I also think if it's hot and humid, he has a chance. That's true. You know what I mean? For people to write him off, to me, he just won the Boston Marathon. And yes, in a in a crazy day, but everybody could have quit. Anybody, everybody else did quit, but him. So fuck that. I I'm not saying that Kawuchi is going to be on the podium, but I'm just saying on on any given day that guy's got to be in the mix. Um, it's like we kept saying that we believed that Meb Kaflesky could win a, a, a marathon major, right? And he, it, it took a bad weather day or some kind of situation for him to win. Come on, this is this is Chicago. All kinds of things can happen. We know it can be hot. We know it can be humid. We know it can be windy. We know it can be cold. But it could be anything. So do not write Kawauchi out after what he did at Boston. The man has a heart that is bigger than anybody else's, and he's got freaking stones that – that scrape the ground. So no, I'm sorry. The dude is legit and real. Now, is he real in the face of Joffrey Karui? Oh, hell no. I mean, Karui's the best in this field. He's proven it time and time again. The only time he's ever, the only time he's been beaten in a major marathon is when he, it took a fucking a store of biblical proportions in order to get him out. And in that race, Chris, he was on, he went, he just made a tactical error with how much he destroyed that field and he came unglued. So no, Karui is by far the favorite here. Mo Farah, let's talk about Mo, Chris. Where <laughs> does this, what this is, to me, it's, I'm excited to see Galen Rupp in a race like this, but I know Alberto is saying, all right, we've got to get some experience before we get on the starting line in Tokyo. We need to have big racing experience against the best. And now he's got a foil in Karui who he knows that he can race consistently against. And he's now raced him a number of times. So there seems to be sort of a, an understanding in race style. And I do think Alberto is probably saying Karui is going to be somebody who's likely to be in going to be likely be a medalist if he's not the gold medalist. So this makes sense for Mo though. This is a big, big move. I am. This is this again, Mo Farah, is I'm becoming more and more of a fan of his as a marathoner, Chris. This is another ballsy, big time, big game move. This he did not have to run this race. He did not have to put himself in this kind of a space. But I think he also was looking and saying, "Who am I likely to be racing against at the Olympic Games?" Right? I've got. He knows there's going to be Rupp in the mix. He knows Karui's going to be in the mix, and he knows that Kipchoge is going to be in the mix. These are the guys that no matter what, those are the four guys that you're looking at and saying, okay, we know those four are going to be in the mix at some point in time with 10K to go in the marathon at the Olympic Games, right? Yep. And so 
Three of these guys are in the same race, and now Kipchoge's out on the outside running against who knows whatever East African shows up that happens to be the, the flavor of the day, right? So this is a better field at this point in time to me, Chris. Right now, it looks to me like Chicago might be better than Berlin. We haven't, I, I, haven't, I haven't studied the Berlin field yet, but when you talk about big-time gamers, these are the guys, you know? So big move by Mo. This race is going to be super interesting, Chris. Yeah, I mean, it's, as you said, it's got at least four athletes that are going to be in the mix, we know, for an Olympic medal. And I think in a lot of ways, this field is more intriguing than Berlin. The time won't be as fast, perhaps, but it might be a more intriguing field, and both are certainly going to be exciting to watch. So. We'll see. And did you mention that they're gonna that they're gonna there's gonna be pacers, right? Our yeah. listeners know that yeah. there will yeah. be pacers. I thought you mentioned it. I just wanted to be sure that this is gonna be much. It won't be as fast as Berlin because you're not gonna get the weather that Berlin has, but it will be a fast, fast race. You're gonna if if the weather's nice, you're gonna have to run between two hundred four and two hundred five to win this race. I think, don't you? Yeah. Oh yeah. For sure. I mean, yeah. I think. I mean, that'll be the question is, you know, what pace do they target to go out? And I think it's going to be somewhere in that range, 204, 205. And it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how it goes. So I'm excited to think about this one and got some homework to do before we make some picks on this one for sure. All right. So we're 37 minutes into our intro. I don't know how we got there, Steve, but you know how it goes. We can let the time fly when we're talking track and field. We've got to get to our Dina interview. We've already given you a preview. If you haven't read the book yet, let your mind run. Listen to this interview, then go get it. Really, really good stuff from Dina Castor. And so I won't spare you any more details except to say let's jump in and talk to Dina. Here we go. Welcome, Dina Castor, to the show. Thank you for joining us, Dina. No, oh, it's such a pleasure to join you guys today. This is this is uh, super fun for us. We're fans of the sport and fans of you as for as long as shoot I can remember my time in the sport. So it's really really cool to have you on. Thank you. You didn't date us very very much when you said that. That was very uh, um, I guess just nice of you. Thank you. Yeah, I got to be careful with that as I get older now. Diplomatic. It was very diplomatic. So, so you were just talking about you were just talking about time outside in the summer with Hyper and as a parent myself I can definitely relate to that. One of the things I ask myself often as a parent is the question about nature versus nurture. And so I know you started your book talking about your childhood and running and how you got started. And I wanted to ask you about your your confidence and competitiveness that seemed to start very early on with the track club there in 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 California. And how much of that do you think was built into you versus taught to you by your parents? Oh man, that's a, a great question because I still don't know to this to this day whether my love of running was because I, it felt natural and I was good at it, or if I was good at it because I had so much joy in the movement. So I, I'm kind of unsure of how to answer that question, but I think that when you have parents that support you being in sports and, and having good role models and mentors, I didn't come from an athletic family, 
but my parents were certainly um, nurturing to both my sister and I to be involved in sports. And I just feel really lucky that I found something that I enjoyed so immensely at the age of 11. And so with our track club here, the Mammoth Track Club, we have a summer program that just the kids meet from five years old up to 17 years old. They meet every Monday to go through a workout at the track. And we just try to make it for those younger kids as fun as possible. We do relays and we leapfrog and we pretend like we're animals and we call them drills. You know, we um, we just try to make it really like a fun initiation to the sport because so much of the time sports use running as punishment for not dressing properly for PE or for not paying attention in the outfield. And so, um, so we're trying to give them at an early age a good association with the sport, which I definitely had. Yeah, Dina, you you were very competitive at a very young age and took to it. Obviously, I mean, it seems like if I I don't have the exact numbers, but you were pretty much undefeated for the first two to three years of your running career. Is that correct? Yes, and um, so that seemed it seemed strange to even write that in my book, and we had to do research. My co-author <laughs> Michelle and I like. We, I kept for years telling my parents, like, throw away those darn boxes in your garage of like scrapping, scrapbooks material and all these things that um, even if my name was just mentioned in a paragraph, they cut it out of the newspaper. And I just said, you know, throw this stuff away. And thank goodness they didn't, because when I decided to write my book, I went down to their house and I grabbed all those boxes and I for about six months, I put all the papers in, in chronological order and then put them into books so that I can e- easily utilize them to, to kind of like balance out my memory and to, to check it against my memory and to, um, to, to really give me some of the, the, um, the more competitive details of, the, of, of my past because Michelle would be in awe, like, oh my God, you remember what you ate for dinner and what was for breakfast at almost every race everywhere in the world, but you don't remember what your time was. So thank goodness we had these, <laughs> these archives and thank goodness for the media for covering that so we could have, um, so we could have that information. Yeah, I was, a, I was a, started running when I was six and started racing when I was eight. And I, my father was a marathoner and sort of hesitantly pulled me into the sport but then once I showed um some talent he he pushed um he pushed me or gave me opportunities it's sometimes as a young as you get older it's hard to determine where the you started and where your parent fell off I don't know if you had any experience with that but my dad was my coach and so I had a lot of experiences of trying to figure out where my place was within my sport and where my selfhood was in terms of being a good runner. And then I got a lot of love for that, but did people really love me? And you, you don't really go into that a lot in your book, but I could tell as you got better and better, as you ran at a higher and higher level, you started to wrestle with some of those existential questions, even at a young age about what your winning meant to you and what that meaning, what that meant to others. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know that's been something, if there's other listeners who have, have been competitive at a younger age, that might be something they've wrestled with. I know I wrestled with it a lot. And it seems like you came to some pretty, you got, you got, came to a pretty good place with it. So you can, you describe that process for us and how that worked for you. I remember, um, very vividly. Um, so I needed no documentation, but when everybody, my coach, my team, my family prepping me for that first loss and 
Um, and it, it didn't come in that in the meet they said it would, but a few meets later at Mount Sac in Southern California. And Kira Jorgensen just demolished me from the gun. And I remember saying like, just cheerleading myself, like she'll, she'll never last. You're be I'm better on the hills. I'm going to get her on the hills. Well, I didn't even come close to, to getting towards her on the hills. She pulled away from me and I just kept encouraging myself. Like, there's no way she can hold this pace. Just hang on. And it wasn't until maybe like less than a half mile before the finish line that I'm like, all right, this is the loss everyone was talking about. But when you, when I finished the race, it not only felt good to have my hands on my knees and put in that type of effort. So I was immediately proud of it, even though, even though it was my first loss, I didn't think of it as that dramatic because Kira was older than me and I had run really hard and then I had broken a freshman record. So it, um, to me, it was, um, oh, well, I extended, I extended myself and extended myself as a winner more or later into the season than anyone thought I would. And I broke this freshman record. And so when I'm a senior, I'm going to be winning this race. So I just justified it in my mind, not to let myself off the hook, but to know that I gave it my best that day. And, and even if you don't meet your expectations of, of winning or PRing, you could still pat yourself on the back because you made the right choices. And, and I think that that's what it's all about is if you're making, if you're making good decisions on a daily basis, then you have nothing to be ashamed of um, in the outcome. That's the, those are wise thoughts from somebody at that age. Do you, <laughs> do you, do you, do you think, I mean, where do you think that comes from? Do you do you think you were really that composed about it at the time, or is this? I really. It was sort of how you were reflecting. No, on it. it was really it was really my thought process at the time because it was later in my career that I wanted to get in the top five at my first um, professional national cross country meet, and I remember towing the line with complete confidence. And within the span of that thirty minute race, I went from confident to crushed, and I had no idea why. Like. I've done everything. So it was a different version of that. I have done everything right. I did feel confident. So how was I so delusional about my fitness and how I could match up against these women? And it was my super supportive parents right there patting me on the back, telling me how amazing I did and that I should be proud. And I tried to be proud of the effort and was it, it wasn't sitting well. I was demoralized. And um, it wasn't until Coach Vigil came up to me and said, you know what, I'm glad you're disappointed because it means you care a lot. I, he said he'd worry more if I didn't care about the outcome of that race. But um, being disappointed meant that I, that I cared and that I was invested and that I wanted more out of myself, that I expected more out of myself. So Rome wasn't built in a day. Let's get your training shoes back on. And, and Monday we go back to work. And I loved that he allowed me to feel that disappointment and gave it a, a more positive um, definition so that I could feel the disappointment, but realize the undercurrent of what it meant was that I cared and I needed to keep going. I think my favorite point in the book, kind of speaking about the work, my favorite point in the book was on your drive to Alamosa when you sort of had to stop and let your talent go yes. and recognize that that had taken you to where it had to that point, but that that wasn't going to take you to the next level. Talk about yeah. that moment and what it meant for you later. Yeah, it had been so many years um, from 11 years old until I graduated from college that people told me that I was talented. And of course, I felt proud of that word of being called to that name above any other name people could have chosen for me. But 
to say that I was talented repeatedly year after year was really, um, I really had a hard time grappling with because to me, it was just a talent I was born with. That's how it was portrayed to me. And, uh, and that if I, if I showed up, my, if my talent was better, I would win. And if someone else was, was born with more talent, they would win. I had no idea, even though I had great coaches, had no idea the, um, the importance of lifestyle and training on the, the outcome of a race. And it seemed, it seemed so strange to me that I didn't know that. I had been running for so many years and I didn't understand anything about the sport. And I realized that with my first phone call with Coach Vigil, um, right before I was ready to retire, thinking I've been in this sport so many years, I need to do something different, to immediately after my phone call thinking, man, I've been in this sport so many years and I know nothing about what it takes to be a runner. And it excited me, that bit of opportunity, um, that that bit of potential that I craved, that feeling that there was more potential within me. And so the only thing that I knew to do was let go of my idea of being talented and get get to putting in hard work and learning under him. And I just feel so grateful for shedding anything that I knew, any preconceived notion of the sport and showing up on his doorstep ready to learn what it takes. And um, and then trusting him so much and thank goodness he was the good man that I thought he was, that Coach V. Hill was extraordinary and not only giving me the belief that my body um, and mind could could reach the the goals that I had for it, but that it was going to take both my body and mind to get there. And I loved that. There was never any um, there was never any doubt in my mind that I had it within me to to reach the the heights that I wanted to. And he let me believe um, that he had the he had the program to to work, and the rest was up to me. The lifestyle and and um, and positive mindset were up to me each and every day. And I loved that I could trust the training and then also add to the training by, by bringing a, a positive outlook to each day. He seemed surprised that you showed up. He was shocked. <laughs> yeah, he was. He was shocked because he just wanted me to come to Alamosa and see, like try it on for size because it's a small desert community in the um, uh, it's Alamosa is the, um, sits in the San Luis Valley, which is the highest Alpine plateau in the world, um, greater than the Rift Valley. So it's a, it's a beautiful place, perfect elevation for endurance running, um, but also a pretty depressed town as far as, um, as far as economy. It's a, a farming community, potatoes and carrots, um, and quinoa is what grows there, much like, um, the Inca diet. Um, and so it was a very sparse lifestyle, which I think was perfect for, for being a distance runner. It allowed me to, to narrow my focus on training and recovery and, um, and to add the, the right kind of distractions, things that would, would nurture and, um, and develop me um, as a person and as an athlete. Because Coach Vigil from the first day said the same traits that build your athleticism, build your character. So you have to you have to choose wisely. So I went there a blank slate and feel very fortunate to have gotten to be molded by this brilliant man. Dina, a couple of years before you, I made the same pilgrimage from Austin, Texas to Alamosa, Colorado to run at a Coach yeah. V Hill. Um, and I was there. I didn't make it very long. Um, I didn't have a financial structure that would really allow me to make it there. I had to work. I worked at the Ace Inn for a couple of oh, uh, for a number awesome. of months. I couldn't get 
couldn't get in at the campus cafe because it was already filled with a whole bunch of people working that already a whole bunch of other distance runners working there. <laughs> um, pops, pops wouldn't let me in. So uh, he's like, I got too many of you guys. You're going to eat me out. You're going to eat me out of the house. But um, so I know exactly the kind of, when you describe the places that you ran in the book and the kind of, the kind of um, Spartan lifestyle that you had to live, I understand because I, I lived it for a while. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of the things that you might have learned from living beyond the mental training techniques and maybe beyond the running things, but maybe things that you talk about an experience of looking across the road at a crab apple tree, walking across and touching it. And there's a lot of those kinds of experiences you discuss in your connection with nature and the connection with that particular valley. Can you talk to people a little bit about that juxtaposition between the absolute beauty and the complete the complete desolateness of this in the same time of that place. It's just a unique place on the planet. Right. I mean, you're, you're sitting in this, um, this dry um, desert plateau and at 30 minutes in every driving 30 minutes in any direction, you hit foothills to the San Juan range or the Sangre de Cristo range. And it's a, um, so a lot of uh, flat running within town itself. But let's, let's also be honest, I not only um, admired this crabapple tree, but one night I went out and actually kissed it, which was, I said, can we just leave that part out of the book? Like, do we really have to tell every reader that I kissed a tree and was surprised at how smooth the bark felt on my lips? Like, and, um, but apparently it was very important to shed that, um, to shed that bit of embarrassment. And because that's what I had to do in the moment was be like, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm actually okay with expressing, with expressing myself without having to get feedback from a person, like to give someone a compliment isn't because I need a compliment in return. It's because it feels nice to, to share that with somebody, that appreciation. And I think that's what Alamosa taught me is to, to, is to really look for the beauty because you could really go there and be like, Oh my God, what a, what a hellhole this is. It's, um, it's an old abandoned railroading town that is now agriculture. Adam State University is there where my husband went and they get mostly, um, most of the, of the student athletes that, that go to school there are from Albuquerque, New Mexico and um, some of the Four Corners areas. And, um, and it was just a fascinating town. I remember um, being dumbfounded with the fact that the college had no influence on the town and the town didn't seem to influence the college. They were like two separate entities. And now it's much more integrated than before. We had the privilege of bringing Piper back there um, just last week for the 50th anniversary of the first ever Olympic trials in the marathon, wow. which was a room of over 300 people and every single person in there had a significance to the sport that was just is so amazing that they pulled off this reunion. Um, uh, Ambie Burfoot was there and Billy Mills and Frank Shorter, um, Steve Bosley, who's the race director for the Boulder Boulder, who basically professionalized the sport in general. Um, helping athletes set up bank accounts and, and trust funds so that they could actually get paid and not disqualifying them from their amateur status. I mean, there was just so many amazing people in this room. I couldn't believe it. And they were all in Alamosa of all places because that's where the first Olympic trials took place to 
form a better team that would compete at the Mexico Olympics since Mexico City is at altitude. So anyway, I'm totally going off topic, but um, but Alamoso is, is a place so so desolate and um, set out set out from the world that I I remember the feeling of rolling into town and it not being the Colorado I had imagined that I just felt like I was slipping out off the radar and and being um, kind of closed off from the rest of the world so I can just put my head down and and um, and try to build myself and it was such a such a um, freeing feeling like um, there was no expectation it was just a, a place to go and quietly build the athlete I wanted to become but in being there I really had to to look for inspiration and find the beauty because I had never worked so hard in my entire life and and on any given day, I could have easily slipped into a pity party of despair and, and being crushed by these men every day and, um, and really just spent and drained. And, um, and I really think um, finding appreciation in the opportunity I had, in the people I was surrounded with, and, um, and the environment I was in, that, I, uh, that appreciation really helped up, uplift me on a daily basis when um, all I wanted to do was lay on the ground and take a nap. <laughs> almost, almost, mm. almost daily, um, I, I feel like I could have been walking to the campus cafe to go to work and just fall asleep while I was working. I thought, well, I wonder if I can just acquire narcolepsy. Is that when you like fall asleep, fall asleep, <laughs> fall asleep? I really felt like I could have been a, a candidate for, for, for contracting that uh, later in life. I was so exhausted all the time. You know, one thing I'd forgotten, Dina, is as the time it took for you to get to where you were from a U.S perspective, you know, to be at the top of the game of the U.S. women's game. <clears throat> and I was looking back at your PRs from college and comparing those to runners like Carissa Schweitzer coming out now, who's, you know, just ran 1503, I believe it was. So the question is, to what extent do you think your ability to progress in the sport and the patience really that you were able to have to get to where you needed to be with V Hill and Alamosa was unique to that time versus, you know, do you think you could have replicated it in today's world where it seems like everybody needs to be running low 15s out of, out of college. Otherwise they're, you know, they're sort of thrown to the wayside. Yeah, I think the only thing that makes it harder now is that everybody knows what everybody else is is doing and what they what their workouts are and what their what their previous race race results have been because of social media. And so I really feel that part of part of building self-belief is not paying attention to what others are doing. And it was the combination of having that belief and patience and then also uh, an innate joy in what I was doing. I was finding joy in the process um, constantly because, you know, that to put that, to put your body through such extreme effort day after day after day, um, you really have to, to find, find out um, your purpose in, in what you're doing. And I found, um, I found at, a, at the very beginning of my professional professional career that um, with the help of Coach Hill, that bringing joy to the process was a huge part in the longevity of my career and, um, and also the, um, 
the some of the highlights of my career that I truly it sounds cliche to say this, but I truly enjoyed the process. And if the process got hard, I would find ways to add joy back into it and then and then continue on. So it was being very strategic about putting in the hard work, but also putting in some hardcore rest and making sure that the entire process was really pleasurable. You know, we, as I said, I had an opportunity to run for Coach Vigil, and he's been a mentor of mine over the years. I've been able to touch base with him and have conversations with him about athletes and about my growth as a coach. And he always has such, well, he's twofold, right? One is, oh, shit, just deal with it, right? That's one side of coach that is every, all the time, right? He's yes. like, oh, shit. Like, that happens no matter what. He's going to hear that. He's going to, he's going to be, there's going to be some serious tough love. But then there's also that other side of him that is, so soft and accommodating to um, the ones he knows cares. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with Coach Hill and maybe talk a little bit to our listeners who are now pretty well acquainted with many of the different coaches who are operating in the country right now, but Coach Hill still hasn't gotten his props and people still don't give him the credit that's due him for the revolution that we now see in American distance running, of which you were crucial with. But as a coach, Talk a little bit about that balance between who he is and also maybe a bit of an appreciation for him now that you've been able to coach yourself. You've watched your husband coach um, and you guys are coaching a great post-collegiate group. Sort of where he stands in the pantheon of American coaches and world coaches. Right. I mean, um, I think if you ask any distant co- distance coach around the world, they would mention Coach Vigil as, as one of the, the best mentors and coaches in the world. And I mean, he worked with Terry Crawford for the coaching protocol for USA Track and Field. And um, so he's giving back on a, on a bigger level. He gives clinics all over the world. And I think for a man who has a PhD in physiology, his psychology, his his ability to inspire and kick someone in the rear end to get them going or to put his arm around them and have a little compassion. There's very few coaches that can read their athletes so beautifully as he does and, and, and does, um, and has done well throughout the year or throughout his career in, um, in this room for this 50th anniversary of the Olympic trials and 300, 300 people packing, packing in there. Every single person had him in common um, he was wow. he was the he was the man that that had touched all these lives, whether they were fantastic athletes or that these athletes went on to um, to with those the same um, influence that coach inspired them to to run and train with that they went on to be to be doctors and lawyers and really influencers in their communities, people who have written um, written code and just fantastic, fantastic credentials. And every single one of these people have also given back and in, in a big way to their communities. So I think for, for someone like him to bring out the best in, in people um, of any ability, but of also any profession is just his, his innate gift and um, the gift that he gives to people. And it's, it's why I dedicated my book to him because he showed me year after year, time and time again, that, no matter what we possess, whether it's time or knowledge or money or food on the table, it increases in value so significantly, significantly the moment it's shared with somebody. And, um, and so that's what inspired me to write the book is that I felt like I learned so much throughout my career and mostly from him. Most of the learning was done in my years with him that I felt like those, those truths 
um, were very universal and could could be shared with with readers and and taken into account whether you are a runner or not. But those kind of um, those kind of ideals that could be practiced in in any form of life to be able to allow people to reach their potential. And so he was he was my motivation in in writing because he's such a fantastic human being. But he doesn't keep anything to himself. He's he has the knowledge of a lifetime of studying this sport for decade after decade, and he shares that knowledge in a split second to anyone that sits down next to him. So he's just a very generous, Excellent. generous man. One of my favorite quotes from the book, from a training perspective from, from him, was this idea that there's no such thing as overtraining, just under-resting. And obviously, sleep was a big part of that for you, but... What else does that mean? Yeah, and um, and it was it was fascinating to me that he not only tells you like sleep is important, but he backs it up with, you know, when you when you're training, your body is um, creating cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and only when you are actually sleeping, not sitting there playing video games or watching movies, but actually in the in a REM state that your body ceases to produce cortisol and instead releases human growth hormone, which helps you repair your damaged muscle tissue. And so it was, it was, it just, when he puts points together like that, he doesn't just say that the rest is important, but tells you why it made it such a significant part of my day. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I need to sleep big time. I'm feeling pretty, pretty stressed out from that workout. My body feels stressed from the workout. But even later still, um, Randy Wilbur is uh, the physiologist out of um, Colorado Springs Olympic Training Center. And in visiting with Coach Vigil and him one time, he was showing me slides from this study of, of runners of equal ability that were all put through uh, an extensive workout. And afterwards, they were taken, um, um, scientists took muscle biopsies of them, of their quad muscle. And the muscles were had damage to them, were inflamed a little bit, irritated, um, but there was micro tears and they broke up the group, split them in half and half the people had to eat a balance of carbohydrate and protein immediately and then sleep in this three hour window. And the other, the other group could not eat or, or sleep, but they could lounge around and drink water and, um, and, it wasn't surprising that at the end they took muscle biopsies again and the people that could eat and sleep, their muscle tissue was already starting to grow. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's coach V Hill told me that that's because cortisol goes down, human growth hormone is released. And so that made sense. But what totally blew me away was that the athletes that could not eat or drink or sleep after their workouts, their muscles looked worse three hours later than right after the workout. So that, that, um, all of that um, that destruction and tearing of, of muscles um, that was happening was was continuing to happen in um, in the three hours after the workout, which was just blew my mind. So just driving home that importance of rest and recovery. Yeah, it's 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 so huge. We're uh, we think about all the other pieces of the puzzle that that people are focused on now, whether they're doing drills before, drills after, when they lift weights, when they do these other things, all those one percenters we like to call, the most important of all is sleep and rest. And yet it's the thing in our modern era that so many people don't do. And it's like, I just, we, Chris and I feel like we're banging our heads against the wall, preaching 
um, a gospel that others don't seem to believe in. But those who do it know they've got a secret weapon. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it's. I mean, I mean, if we're just not even going to think about performance-wise, at least it, it's also good for for hormone um, for your your general hormones, so you don't get depleted and. Um, and like adrenal fatigue and it allows you to, um, it, you're, so you're nicer. And so your relationships are better. Like it's good for everything. It's not just good for running. So, um, so, you know, it's, it's similar to that, to coach Veal's knowledge of, of sleeping, that this knowledge of being able to, you know, you hear for so many years, you should eat within a 30 minute window, but the closer you can eat to your workout, the better your body is going to absorb those nutrients and, and put them to work, put them to use. Um, it takes sometimes more of that scientific side to really drive it home to, to a greater understanding. So, I mean, those, it sounds like cliche to say, Oh, get your sleep and eat your eat, you know, eat within a 30 minute window. Cause we've heard it for years, but when you hear it in a more scientific way, it makes you understand it much greater and maybe even practice it with a little more ease. Absolutely. Um, so at some talk, before we leave Alamosa, um, let's talk about miles at the park. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> You're, I'm uh, sure you have me beat. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was there the day Marty, the way Mar the day Marty Jones brought Marty, uh, Marty Johns, Marty broke, John, Marty Johns broke four minutes for the mile in the park, which to me to this day is still like, one of the great folk moments of, of in all of Alamosa history, but um, that the uh, talk a little bit about that and and that place, you know, for somebody who has an exercise a PhD in exercise physiology, Coach Vijo had a very simple training protocol, and I think many people get that confused. They think they see his training protocols and think it's simplistic and too easy, and yet the man know can walk circles around nearly any physiologist in the world in terms of understanding what's going on physiologically in the human being. So where does the miles in the park sort of sit, especially in those years when coach was in Alamosa before he moved to the other locations? Talk a little bit about that, what that experience was there, the dread, the existential dread that everyone had getting into Cold Park and doing those <laughs> workouts and where the hill sat in that park and how little reprieve you ever got from coach, whether it was windy or snowy or freezing or whatever. It's like a rite of passage, the Cold Park Miles. Uh, talk of them a little about them a little bit. Oh my gosh. So coach is obviously a, a no excuses guy. So it doesn't matter what the weather was doing, which was never totally ideal in Alamosa. Um, and, uh, and so Cold Park miles were two loops in the park, but there was a, a hill halfway through the, the loop that you had to, that you had to conquer. And it was at a, it was at a point that you're already like just starting to burn a little bit in the in the repeat. And I was always chasing men around there. So I was all always being um, always being dusted in the in the park and trying to rally myself. And coach didn't give too many pats on the back, but I think that everybody knew the history of mile repeats there, the the Martin John sub four minute mile and um, and uh, Pat Porter's uh, record-breaking runs there. That's that you were there, and there was there was history in that park, and you felt um, you felt a need to to own up to that history. So it was um, probably our our most important workout of the week, our most intense workout of the week. Um, but then you know we go to Fort Garland and run the hills, and you've got to run it faster than last week. So you're yeah. you know off of off of tired repeats in the park. You're hitting um, a, um, a 12 mile hilly loop through the mountains or battling up Rock Creek Road to, 
to over 10,000 feet. And so there's just every day what had this had huge demands, which made the, the need for rest and recovery uh, that much greater. But coach, coach always expected the best out of you and, and didn't, um, didn't allow for anything less than that. Oh, his big buzzword was excellence, and you built excellence every day. And so to, to show up at the park, it didn't matter if you were tired from the day before, you didn't sleep well the night before, that you've gotten a fight with your mom on the phone, you had to show up and, and pursue your excellence. And that was the day, that day was the only day that mattered, was the day you were showing up. And you had to keep doing that day in and day out. For the running geeks in our audience and for me personally, I need more of a breakdown on mile repeats in the park. What was what were the instructions? What paces were you supposed to run? What kind of recovery did you get? You're not going to get much help here, Chris. But go ahead. Yeah, I need a little bit more detail. Um, I, you know what? It was it was every, it, everything to me was all out all the time. So you know the, the mile repeats would would get slower towards the towards the the second to last one because because you're depleted. You're, you know, every day was that day where you're tasting blood. So that's, that's my benchmark. If I'm tasting blood in the back of my throat, then I know I'm doing the workout right. And that was, that was, um, that was the instruction, like just get, get after it. you got to get out aggressively and you got to maintain that aggression. And then you got to finish strong. That was his, that was his, um, his instruction at the beginning of the workout. And, I mean, he would tell tell me on on runs when he would start me off if it was an equalizer, starting me off first, like don't let the men catch you. And with the men, he's like, don't let a girl beat you. So he played us off of each other and um, and kept it fun that way. It seemed like um, very much like race um, simulations when you're trying to to fend off or hunt down people in in workouts, but. Um, but it, he was just demanding, and um, and I think he could see it in your he could see it in your face if you were lollygagging or or giving a good effort. So um, so um, so you better fake a good grimace if you're if you're going to lollygag that day. One of the things you learned in Alamosa is through V Hills the power of positive thinking, and it seemed like you also developed your gratitude practice in Alamosa. One question we got from a listener is how have those two things, those two tools, sort of thinking positively and also this sort of using gratitude as a tool, how have they carried forward with you in other things outside of running? Oh, wow. I mean, I I feel like really... The sport of running is um, is so. Uh, I guess I feel lucky to have this sport because we can put ourselves in a place of challenge on a daily basis, put ourselves in the crux of a workout, the crux of a run, the crux of a race, um, and and go through tools to try to to try to get to get through it and to get to that finish line. Um, and so I have found, and now science backs it up that a positive mind gives your body the energy and the ease to get those to get those demanding um, demanding chores done as opposed to being being filled with angst uh, angst or anxiety where you run tight tight and with tension um, so a positive mind is is the one that gets you through those through those uh, workouts and races better, and um, and gratitude actually floods your body with with hormones that also help in the effort. 
So I think that with the gift of running, if we can keep that positivity and gratitude a practice through our running, then that that practice of mind that ha- becomes a habit and that habit of mind infiltrates our entire day. Not that we don't have to still work at it, but um, but I think running gives us that opportunity to create the the mind that we have. I remember um, in the Chicago Marathon in 2015, when I was going after the American record, the American Masters record, that every choice in that race, it was, I had a a rocky buildup to the race and then the race itself was rocky. Um, There were some mishaps of missing water bottles, a guy stepping on my shoe and giving me a flat tire. And and so there's all these things happening. And every time I just kept um, refocusing and, And I remember thinking at one point, like, I don't have to do this anymore. Like, what am I putting my, why am I putting myself through this? This is hard (laughs) and I'm older and I've paid my dues. I'm never going to run 219 again. Like, what am I doing out here doing this? And it finally hit me that I was, that I was, that it was important that maybe that, that race didn't matter, but the decisions I made in the, in the race mattered a whole awful lot. And so even if, even if we can sometimes um, backtrack and make plan B and C off of our goals when the going gets tough, I think it's really important to um, to define ourselves in that moment that when we're given the choice to give up or dig down, to, to throw in the towel or to drop the hammer, that those choices are, um, are ours to make because they're defining who we are. And so if you make, if you make those choices about your character, then you're going to, you're going to care more about, about the choice that you make as opposed to making the, um, those decisions based off of this silly race that happens every year. So I think it's really, really important to put that onus on ourselves that the practice of gratitude and positivity is actually creating your character and creating your the habit of your character. And that is really, really critical in every decision that we make. Dina, you're such a gift to our sport. I just want to thank you for that's such an important point to make. And so many people want to talk about, we, Chris and I spend a lot of time talking about mental training techniques. And the very beginning of your book, um, you talk about the, the importance of a positive mental attitude. And then you also talk about gratitude as you just did. And these sort of fundamental human decency characteristics that are so critical and crucial to the entire process that people don't don't highlight so much. And I thought your book did that incredibly beautifully and, and brought it to bear on your life and the way that you're living, um, the way you've lived your life. It's been, it's really, it's really inspiring. Um, Thank you. That's so nice. Thank you. So at the end of your chapter on Athens, um, which again, the writing in this book is so beautiful and so much of it just compels you to keep reading, but we've got to keep moving with these questions that we're never going to get down the road because we're still at (laughs) Alamosa. (laughs) At the end of your chapter on Athens, you asked a couple of questions of yourself. And um, I'd like for, I'm going to ask them right now for those folks who may not have listened, read the book yet, or maybe not remember these questions, but I'd like you to to think if you have the answers to these questions now, because you don't answer them in the book and I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. So like, what if you'd gone earlier? Like, what if you'd gone earlier? What difference could that have made in that race? Right. And, um, and I, I think that those are answers that, that can't, I mean, those are questions that can't be answered because we all have what ifs at the end of races, but those, those what ifs that I asked of myself after every race, um, or the um, the goals that it, that bubble up after a race, um, the teasers of 
of winning a race or getting third in a race and seeing the women ahead of me and thinking I could do that are the, are the moments that, that, um, that get me excited to, to start training again. And so I, I actually feel in Athens, I was in incredible shape and I was really scared of the heat and I didn't overheat at all. And I, I, wondered. Um, and so those, those ponderings of going sooner, uh, making my move a little sooner, not letting as big of a gap happen. Um, it could have worked to win gold, but I also could have gone over the edge and overheated like many of the best in the world did that day. So it's an unanswerable question, but, but the tease of it made me hungry to, to, to not make that my career capping race that I knew that there was more in me that I had more to give and I couldn't wait to do it. She, she dodged the question, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) Up until, so that, that my, my last mile, my last mile in the race from my, from mile 25 to 26 was something like a four forty something mile when I went past Elfnesh Alemu of Ethiopia, who ended up, there's so many stories that didn't make the book, but Elfnesh and her husband, Geza Ibera, who's world champion in the marathon, came to Alamosa to train after that. And we had such an amazing time training together, learning kind of the sign language of running with the East Africans with their hand gestures and um, without without words, just hand gestures of, of taking the lead. And, um, and um, and so it's, uh, I feel like the running has, has also opened up these opportunities for these friendships, even though I beat her out to a, to a medal in the Olympic games, the friendship that emerged after that was, was, was one that I'll cherish for a long time. So that race for you, a bronze, and you, know, you also had Meb silver in that same Olympics in a lot of ways became a turning point for American distance running. Those two medals would become an inspiration or the inspiration for, you know, what is now, you know, just an insane uh, renaissance of sorts. I mean, uh, golden age, I guess you could call it, of American distance running, especially on the women's side. You know, you you inspired Shalane's medal in Beijing and, you know, Kara and Molly and Emma and Jenny and so many amazing American female distance runners that, and really at this point we can compete at the 800 level all the way to the marathon on the world stage and have a chance at a medal, which is super exciting. And, you know, I think a big part of that was your result there in Athens. Do you, do you recognize that and understand that contribution to, to American distance running? Um, I, I think it was a collective effort and it was what we set out to do when we created the um, Running USA here in Mammoth Lakes with Coach Larson coaching Meb and Coach Vigil coaching me and the, the rest of the team is gathering the best distance runners from around the country and having us work together to elevate each other um, with the intention of earning an Olympic medal. And it was a result of the poor showing in the Sydney Olympics in 2000 where distance running was a disgrace and including, including my own performance. Um, so it was, it was gathering the best looking at the East Africans and saying, you know, they train in groups, they train at high altitude. So let's simulate that and, and, um, and work together. And so in the, in those four years that we worked together, that is what our intention was. Um, every time we met for practice and coach Vigil reinforced that, 
um, and kept it at the forefront of our mind and let us know how capable we are and that um, that the, the world is vulnerable. When we work together, the rest of the world is going to be vulnerable. And so he let us he he gave us that spark of belief by by telling us that on a daily basis when we met. And so our performances um, were a result of that of that big, big effort of many people. Um, but that's that's all we have to start with is that belief. It's what got me to Alamosa was that spark of belief. And it's what's driving um, American distance running right now. And there's such a synergy in it because so many men and women right now are are competing at at a high level, at an international level, that they can make podiums at world champions at um, world championships, Olympic games at um, world marathon majors. And that is a, that is something that you can't even pinpoint, oh, this person is capable. We have like five people on the starting line capable of, of podium at any, at any given race. So it is so exciting to, to see that American distance running is uh, so competitive right now. And, um, and that I believe that there's a synergy um, with all these men and women um, not working together in a in a way that they're working together um, in training, but that but that they um, that they're um, using that competitive energy to elevate themselves um, because it is it is competitive on the international and national scene right now. It does seem like your American record, though, in the marathon is 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 still a step ahead, perhaps, of where. Of where our group is now, even though we have an amazingly stacked women's marathon contingent now with Shalane and Des and Amy Hastings Craig and Molly moving up and Jordan Hesse, who knows what her potential could be in the sport. Who do you think has the best chance to come after your American record? If if I had oh, if I had to make God, you feel- I hate this question. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Um, oh gosh. I I mean any one of those, any one of those women, women can. I know that um, Jordan is going to attempt it. I think that's why she's choosing Chicago again this fall is to a, to attempt that record. Um, and it's not, it's not out of, it's not, it's not out of reach for any one of these women on a good day. I know Shalane tried in Berlin and came close to, to breaking the American record. But at, th- at this point, um, I don't feel like it's mine. Um, I felt like it was mine the day I broke it. Like it felt good because Joan Benoit Samuelson gave me this, this beacon and she was someone that I admired both what she does on, on the playing field and off the playing field that I admire her so greatly. And I felt um, gratitude galore that day to be able to, to chase her record and, um, and a privilege to be able to, to break it. And, and to me, the, the record was there to bring out the best in me in training and racing that day. And so it felt good on that day, but I don't feel ownership of it. It was, it was, it was there to, um, Joan's record was there to chase. And now I feel like my record is there for, for women to get the best out of themselves to chase. And, um, but I don't believe it's mine. I believe it's, um, it's there, it's there up, up for grabs, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> But it's been 15 years. That seems very weird. Or 15 years since I broke Jones' record, and then maybe 13 since I broke 220. But um, it's been a while. But it's. I think it's. I think it's ready. It's ready to to, to change hands. I think London was 2006, right? So, mm-hmm. so yeah, 12 years, yes. just over 12 years. 
12 years. Yeah. Wow. So did you, um, did you, when you think back on all the amazing results you've had through the years, which result are you most proud of? Oh man. Okay. So I think many people would think that Athens would be on that list, but Athens was that day that I had a lot of questions feeling like I had more in me to, to give. And so Athens, um, Athens res resonates in me with a lot of conflict that I'm proud of, of accomplishing my goal of earning a medal, but I'm disappointed that I didn't um, risk a little bit more in that race um, since it is the Olympics and that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to, to get the best out of yourself. And it may seem strange, but I really believe that 2015 running the American master's record was my maybe my best lesson. It was like the, um, it was the, the day that, um, the buildup in the day told me that the practice of positivity is important every chance you have to practice it because the buildup of that race with fires in California that disrupted some of our training, I had terrible allergies, which compromised my, my training load, sent me inside some days and, um, and then catching the flu, um, and I threw up my hands to give up because I just couldn't handle any more, any more um, um, ailments in my, in my, or distractions and hurdles in my buildup. And, um, and Andrew brought it to my attention that despite the, the excuses that I was shouting out at him with that, I had had some of my longest long runs in the past decade. Um, I was hitting sub five minute miles, which I hadn't done in years. And that I did a series of the longest tempo runs that I've ever done in my career. And he said, so despite some of these, some of these excuses, I'd say you're, you, you've got in a lot of quality work and that you're very capable and ready of, of getting this record. And so I just shrugged off the excuses. Both of them were my reality at the time, I, but only one of those stories was going to allow me to, to pursue this goal. So I, I, I deleted all of the excuses and I reinforced the belief in myself and I got on the starting line and every, every mile I had to, to recommit to, to pursuing that goal. When I fell off pace, um, just giving myself the ability to get back on pace the next mile and believe that I could do it. And, um, and when it felt easy at 20 miles and then at 21 miles felt like I couldn't go on anymore. I just said, get through this. It's a, just a bad patch. It doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be this way for the rest of the race. And you know that from your past. So just get through this bad patch and get, get going again. And it was this constant cheerleading for that last 10 K of the race. But through it all, at any point, I could have given up on that goal. And it was so powerful to that, that, and it was because of the practice for so many years of practicing positivity that I was able to just continue committing to, to making it there and being able to fulfill that goal. So it was a really, it was a really important race for my entire career because it reinforced the, um, the power of a single choice. And you got it done. Yeah. Yeah. But at any one of those points that there was probably a more than a thousand opportunities to, um, to make the, to make a, to make a choice in the, within that race to, um, to, to give up on what I was trying to do. Um, but I, but I didn't, I was persistent and, um, and persistence is another thing that coach V Hill, um, try, um, helps us practice. So, um, so I think it's, 
building building your character year after year in the choices that you make is is every single one is is equally important. So I've got some listener questions for you here for those that have read the book. So one wants to know, she says, it seems like these mental training tools and practices came relatively easy to you. Was that the case or did you struggle at times? And was it different when you transitioned to the marathon? Yeah, I feel that the only reason that finding these tools, these positive tools made a difference is because it was hard and I could feel the significance of, of, um, of being condescending, even if it was just in my own head, being condescending to myself or, um, or not giving myself a break and, um, that there were, there were a lot of really hard moments, but I, I think that the hardest moments, um, that I, that I talk about in the book, whether it's being, um, kind of rejected by my teammates or breaking my foot in the Olympic games, just a couple to, to note that these are some of the, some of the, my harder moments in my career, but so necessary. The first one in, um, in feeling like 10 of my teammates broke up with me at the same time, um, that I needed, I needed to feel that, um, I needed to feel that rejection in order to look at myself in the mirror and realize that I liked who I was because I had never acknowledged that before. And it was, might've seemed like strange or trivial, but it was amazing to me what came out of, that moment of self-acceptance. And I don't think I could have gone on and done a lot with my career if I didn't acknowledge that I liked the person that I was, even though I was still trying to change, um, get faster and, and become an even better person. That, um, but it was necessary to say, you know what? I, I, like, I like who I am and, and I like the path that I'm on. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep, keep my head down and keep going. It's similar to being um, disappointed or happy with a race and patting yourself on the back, whether, um, whether the race was good or bad, but know that you want more out of yourself. So, um, so I remember coach Beal telling me time and time again, that, um, that you can't let your victories define you just like you can't let your defeats define you. You've got to keep finding ways to get back on the horse and, and continue your, your venture. And I, I, I loved that about him. And I think that that is why so many of the people he's mentored and coached over the years have a bit of humility in them because there's, there's not much to boast about because we want to keep improving. If something is career or life tapping, then we don't have much else to live for. So to just keep, keep striving um, now, now in this day and age, I know I'm not going to get faster, but I know I can continue to get the best out of myself day in and day out. And that keeps me the best version of myself as an athlete and as a person. So it's important to do that. Hmm. We did have several people ask about you getting resolution with the men in Alamosa and if that had ever come, it sounds like it came in that realization that it's okay to not be liked by some. You're happy with who you are. Yeah. And, uh, and I had to be, unfortunately, I had to be more cautious around them because I thought like maybe my positivity is annoying or maybe they don't like my relationship with coach. So I never talked about coach Caroline and I going to Taos for the weekend or, um, or going out to, to dinners together because I wasn't sure if that hurt them that I was, that I was so close. Cause I know that, 
um, that everyone that works under him cares about him and wants to be cared for. And, um, and so I was cautious, self-conscious and cautious in, in ways that I never was before, but I just let them be my, be my teammates without, um, without the emotional connection of feeling like, um, like I, um, like we were, we were part of each other because I, I think I was, I was too attached to that idea of working together um, in the beginning. And I think that's why it made the rejection hurt so badly. And I'm cordial to them. One of my teammates, Phil Castillo, um, is serving, has been for many years serving in the in the army and wanted to put on a, a race at his, his base in Baghdad. So I put together an entire box of race stuff with bibs and prizes and um Bib numbers and prizes, and um, and sent them out to him a couple stopwatches, and um, and allowed them to put on this race on their on their base in Baghdad, and um, and so it's those kind of those kind of things. I'm I'm still friends with them, but um, but I you know that kind of hurt. I'm I'm a little bit of an elephant in that I don't forget things like that, but I am a I am appreciative of the time, and we were all immature. If if I was more mature at the time, I would have called them to my house and we would have sat down and had tea and talked about it um, just to get everything off our chests. But instead I was just hurt by it at the time and, um, and they got over it. They probably just said what they wanted to say and got over it. So not an entire closure, but I do feel grateful for the moment because of, of where it led me. We have another listener question for you that I want to, that I, it's a little long winded, um, Dina, but it's a really good one. And so I'm going to read the whole question. It's a two part question. Um, so, um, did you ever encounter any obstacles that you couldn't overcome with your mindset alone? Questions that truly required making a change in another aspect of your life to allow you to continue to be positive and to persevere. And do you have any suggestions for how to recognize the difference between something that can be overcome by shifting perspective versus something that requires decisive action. Wow. Yeah, I, I think that we that we all encounter um, challenges and hurdles that um, that are obstacles too big to overcome. And but the but the I think the self gratification comes in using all of your tools to try to get over them. And I always think in moments like that, even when I've tried everything, then, okay, is there a new tool that I just don't know of? Is it going to come to me today? And I remember thinking that in Boston this year um, with, um, I felt like I was in phenomenal shape and my team wasn't talking about the fitness that I was in because I wanted to go in a dark horse into this race. And um, just as the the person that was a has been, but a recognizable name. And, um, and I really felt like I had it within me to, to, to challenge the leaders um, at the, at the race. And, um, and I got hypothermia and I remember being so cold that I was running and shivering and my jaw was locked, like had this was locked and I couldn't get it to unhinge. And my legs were so cold that I felt like I was running on two frozen pistons. By 10K, my quads were so sore from running running with cold muscles, the pounding of the pavement on cold muscles. And I just thought, all right, you know, you're gonna if in the next mile you're gonna warm up. And I just kept using everything. Let's look around at the at the people who are out here in this in these miserable conditions cheering for us. They're choosing to be out here cheering for us. And so just going through everything from 
trying to get my, my body and mind on board to trying to completely distract myself by using the, the people around me. I ended up with hypothermia in the medical tent at mile 14. And it was out of my hands at that point. I was, I was trying everything. And um, for some reason, my body wasn't, um, wasn't able to run in the cold. And I love nasty conditions. I love extreme heat, extreme cold. I love sloppy cross country conditions. And that's what I went into that race thinking. So that was a hurdle that I couldn't overcome that day, but I gave it my, my greatest honest effort. And I think sometimes when a positive mind isn't working, um, just like I did in Boston, I look for distractions, whether it's views or or just singing a song or thinking about what I want to make for dinner, just completely disassociating when I can't get everything on board to get me in a nice uh, flow and rhythm of, of what I'm trying to accomplish. So distractions are my, my last, uh, my last resort. When did you find out that Des had won? Um, while I was in the, the medical tent, um, I couldn't stop shaking so they put me in a in like a SWAT team van um um just off the just off of the medical tent and they had a television playing the playing the race and I got to see the moment that Desiree broke away and um and you know in a in a move like that when when you can tell that her opponents were suffering that and Desiree doesn't make dramatic moves she's just very consistent um she's um Pace wise, she's like a metronome. Once she gets on pace, she just sticks with it and other people fluctuate um, with surges and, and receding. But I knew when she that it was not so much that she was pulling away, but people were falling off. And I and I was I was confident she was going to win. So it was it was a really exciting moment um, to, to sit there and be able to watch it. So I feel grateful that, um, that if I was going to have such a bad day that I could at least, um, appreciate the, the view of her winning. Um, but it was a, a fantastic day for American distance running and also for Des herself who had been committed to winning this race for so many years. Yeah. So deserving. Yes. So you've been incredibly generous with your time, Dina. We appreciate it, but I have one last question for you. Great. Um, we're, we're all fans and we're trying to build fans through this podcast and hopefully we've found new fans for you uh, today. So what's next for you and also what's next for the Mammoth Track Club? Oh, wow. So today, um, our, as we're recording this, um, is our Talks in the Park Day. So in the summers, we have um, thousands of teams that come up here from Southern California, but also across the country, high schools, junior colleges and colleges, they come up with their teams to, to train and they come up individually um, uh, for individual camps. But we try to make it more to welcome them to the community by having talks in the park on Wednesday night. So my Mammoth Track Club uh, teammates and I host um, a Q&A session. My husband is the MC. Uh, Coach Caster is the MC for it, and we give out a ton of swag and um, and feed the feed everybody pizza. Um, but the giveaways are the most fun because Andrew asked uh, fun trivia running tri trivia questions. Um, so these are the summers are really fun that there are just thousands of runners in town every week, and um, and this this these are the days that that kind of thrill me because when I was in high school, I also came to Mammoth for for cross country training camp, and my alma mater is up here this week and. Um, so I love the I love the give back in the community. This community is fantastic for for training and um, and to see other other athletes running here throughout the summer is is really fun for us to see. 
I have a lot of travel coming up because fall marathon season is among us, but I'm going to be ambassadors to the um, Chicago Marathon and also heading out to the New York City Marathon, the Hot Springs Marathon in Arkansas, and I'll probably visit my my Razorback team um, in Fayetteville on that trip. Um, the Akron Marathon. So it's fun to go to go on the to these to these races around the country because I love the running community and I feel like there's no other sport that allows the first timer and the record holder to be able to um, to share experiences as equally as we share in this sport. I can be on a basketball court shooting free throws with Kobe Bryant all day long and never truly know what it's like to be in his shoes. But running is another story. We are so relatable no matter what our our um, motivation is or our ability or our, um, our gender um, our nationality, that we we all go through the, the same ebbs and flows that this sport has to offer. And so it's a gift to be able to share with others. Well, thank you. And thank you for your book. It is definitely a gift to all of us. We really appreciate the time. Thank you so much, you guys. It was a pleasure to, to chat with you today. Wow. Amazing. What a conversation with Dina. If you haven't already, go get the book, Let Your Mind Run. You will not regret it. Man, we've got a high bar we've set with these first two Endorphin Book Club editions with Alex Hutchinson and then Dina Castor. And so we've got to do some work to pick our third book, and we will let you know what we choose there as soon as we have it. Now we will wrap this episode 87. As always, you can check us out at our website, roguerunning.com, or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.